see for yourself podcast. I am your host today, Booty Cootie, and I am joined here by Wholesale Pineapple. Wholesale pineapple, the, the the pineapple you want to buy because it's wholesale. You're just you're paying what you're supposed to. I'm sick of those upcharging pineapples. Pieces More people need it. Like it's already got the, the pineapple industry incredibly predatory. By the way, that's an actual thing. Do go on, sir. Oh god, I actually I don't know enough about it. It's something that I'm gonna have to go relook up. Yeah, just uh, it, in much the same way that um, you know huge swaths of land cut down for sugarcane and stuff like that. Same thing for pineapple, and pineapple doesn't have the longevity that sugarcane does. Really not great. And uh, you know, underpaid workers, all that shit. Jesus Christ, that is that is rough to hear. I know that the uh, the like nut industry is really bad. Cashew, like, yeah, uh, cashews horrible for the environment, for the people that grow and pick them. Horrible. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, not cashews. Almonds. Almonds are the bad one. There's also a lot of like like out of all the things that are stolen in the U.S., I think it's like cheese and all and and uh, not almond, but like nuts in general are stolen like crazy. Really? I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, they've had to like really up their security in terms of like what they like take in and what they put out because people steal them. People steal them in like, Are we talking about like like retail nuts? I go to the, you go to the gas station well, people are stealing nuts? Well, yeah, basically, but like you know the process by which they like go and like take them from one place and put them into a big ass truck and then move them to another, you know. There's there's land pirates yes. heel hauling yes. for nuts. Yes. Jesus. And like I'm I'm not saying that we should I'm not saying that we should. I'm just saying that, like... We could. Yeah. We could make a career out of this, you and I. I'm I'm going to say we should table this for now, but yeah, we'll I, I'm horribly <laughs> interested. Let's keep this off the podcast. <laughs> Man, they haven't put out an episode for a while. Like, oh, yeah, you didn't hear? They're out there fucking swashbuckling nuts. <laughs> uh, Mr. Pineapple, can you tell us what we are doing today? Because today is an episode of, of yours. This is another bad movie for me. I don't do smart movies. All um, right, all right. Uh, so this is Bunraku, 2010 film. I don't. You want to just read the blurb first, and sure, we'll, we'll tear into it. I will read the blurb as I am one to do. So the blurb reads as follows: In a future society where guns are illegal, a fist fighter and a swordsman pummel and slash their way through a reclusive leader's army of thugs. So, uh, so Bunraku, the word itself is um, a word for a type of Japanese puppet theater, and. My understanding is that they use certain themes in this to, to like this is a very theatrical performance. Not, that's about it. that's about all I'm going to give you on that. But uh, um, I'm, so when we're when we're just just hearing the title, so immediately I think of and as you're describing like puppet theater, I think of Rakugo, and we've talked about Rakugo a little bit. It's one of my favorite like types of like storytelling and, and public performance. Specifically, it's basically just you kneel down in front of a large group of people and you sort of tell a story using only like a fan and I, I, I think it's like a fan and like a, a wooden block or a stick or, or something like mm. that. Um, you have like these very limited resources to help you tell the story. And you just sort of verbally tell the story, and you sit down the whole time. You don't get to move around or anything. And I think that's really interesting. Any type of like storytelling method that's like, I, I think that uh, limitations breed creativity. Mm. And sometimes that's really, really good, and other times it's terrible. But I think specifically, you know, uh, in the case of Rakugo, I, it can be really good. And then I also think of Rashomon after that. And I don't know if you've ever seen Rashomon. I've not. No. It's another one of Kurosawa's films. And I know how much you love Seven Samurai. Right. The, um, the three hours we never watched. The three-hour film we never watched. Because we, we literally said, oh, it's three hours long. And then we watched Batman, which is like slightly more than three hours. Right. Or we've sat down and knocked out two of these. And or, yeah, yeah. We've done, we've done two so, in one day. So it's really got to be on the list at some point here. No, we're definitely going to watch it. But uh, Rashomon is also about that. Rashomon is basically about people in a court of law saying, hey, this is what happened. And it's supposed to be like a play on the theatrics of justice. You know, you can't really trust anyone 
because no matter how you do justice, someone is telling a story. It could be a completely true story, or there could be small fabrications here and there, or it could be completely innocent and they're just like misremembering it, or it could be, you know, and that's what the movie is exploring, and it's uh, it's a masterpiece, probably one of the greatest films ever made. You're basically describing My Cousin Minnie. You know what? Actually, Rashomon translates to My Cousin Minnie. <laughs> There's like a whole scene where like the guy, you know, the, like the... The, the Japanese bandit and then the samurai and the samurai is like actually the katana blade that has like a washing pattern in it. He explains in very great detail. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, I guess it wouldn't be a samurai. It would be like the, the priestess. Like the, the priestess would explain it. That's that's the My Cousin Vinny. Big scene in My Cousin Vinny. Yes. So, only slightly related, but I really like how older movies that are set in the future have this wonderful, fantastic idea of what we're going to accomplish by 2008 or something like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like something can also be said of apocalyptic movies, future post-apocalyptic type things, because I think the things that make it sort of hinge on what we value as the movies being produced, like what we value now, and it's like, oh, but what if everything that we appreciate now was gone? And so, you know, in the same way for like the, the hopes of the future in these old movies, and kind of lost my train of thought there, but you get what I'm getting at, right? I get you. I always, uh, what, what is it? Flight of the Concords does a song called, I think it's called Robots, mm-hmm. and basically the song is just... It opens up with, in the distant future, the year 2000. <laughs> I think the song was made in like 2008 or something. Right. But they're like doing a riff on that where like the distant future is either like wildly post-apocalyptic. All the humans are dead. All the like uh, animals on Earth are dead. You know, and these robots are finding them and it's like, oh, dang. It's either like wildly sad or it's like, no, this Star Trek takes place in like the year 2015 and like... Everything's solved. They have replicators, and, like, the yeah. economy is really just based off of, you have all the money you need, like, you have everything you need, go pursue passions. Perfect socialism. Everybody's taken care of in every way they need to be taken care of in. If you want to do work, you do work. If you don't want to do work, that's okay, too. Like, you can just be a scholar or, like, a, a world traveler or whatever you want, you know? Right. You don't really have to contribute anything. We'll still take care of you. I don't know. I, I think that people who, like, don't believe in uh, concepts like that, like, hey, we should have free health care or we should have free education or something. Those people never watch Star Trek. They're, they're people who like Star Wars. They're like, yeah, we have to blow up the planet. That's the only way to establish ourselves as rulers. And it's like, no, no, you have, like, the stronger standing army. You don't need to blow up a whole planet. Right. <laughs> so so in the movie, it's it's set in, like, an alternate reality, basically. Right. Or at the very least, it's sort of like, I don't know, Japan kind of has, like, guns mostly outlawed. Like, you, it's right. really difficult to own a gun in Japan. And even, even police officers don't respond to things with guns. They respond with, like, nightsticks or whatever. They have, like, a different, what's it called? Like, a trifecta of response. Like, you, the danger that is presented to them, typically, does Their not first responders is not... Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if that's like a thing that the movie will talk about is like, hey, this is already kind of a thing in Japan where like police officers don't respond with guns. They respond with like, you know, they're, they're just going there to like check and see what's going on. They might have like a little baton or something like that, but that's about it. And it's very, it's, it's totally possible for you to get a gun in Japan. You can do it. The Yakuza did it. It's just most stuff a police officer is going to have to handle won't involve that and like there's SWAT teams and shit but like I wonder if that's a thing that'll be talked about in the movie is it like we've outlawed guns but people definitely still have guns pretty regularly so that's something I want to bring up is like this is some it's supposed to be a post-apocalyptic world do you think that there's some some choice made here where they're like guns are outlawed as opposed to we don't know how to make guns anymore I prefer that story where people have devolved to the point where like 
we don't know how to do it anymore. We wouldn't even know. It, it also feels more complete, right? Like, how do you make the... Because like you said, they they still have guns in Japan. It's just like that escalated threat level that requires that they bring them in. So we've got these bandits, basically, this this fist fighter, this swordsman, going around trying to take down some evil regime, whatever. Well, uh, a person in power, a government power of some kind. Do you think they're going to like meet them on their terms? Like, okay, swordsman, I'm Ron Perlman, and I'm going to fight you with a sword. Or do you think Ron Perlman's going to be like, no, they're outlawed, but... I'm the president, and shoot him. I think that most of the movie is going to involve, yeah, we're just fighting the fight guy, and we're, we're sorting the sword guy. Right. Or maybe we're sorting the fight guy and fighting the sword guy. And maybe they'll get a little clever with it. You know, maybe they'll set up a trap or something. It'll be like a big fire pit that they set so you up. Thought, they, you don't think guns are going to be like... I think guns will come up, but not for a majority of the film. I think the okay. majority of the film is going to be like, oh, we're just fighting each other. We're just doing the kung fu thing. And then towards the end, it'll be like, oh, damn, they have guns. Or somebody will sort of dramatically be like, I have a gun. I'm the guy. I'm Ron Perlman with a gun. What a what a terrifying visage that would be. Right. Ron Perlman with a gun. Oh, God. He's never had a gun in any other movie I know him from. Not once. Never, ever. I remember another post-apocalyptic movie. I didn't watch it, so maybe we can watch that sometime. The whole point of it is that he's got the last Bible. Oh, Book of Eli. Like, I thought that was a... The concept being really good, because what, what I'm aware of it is that the guy's got the last Bible, and everybody wants it, because... I don't, I'm not 100% sure why they want it, but it's like, you know, this. these are words of power. This caused people to rally, and whoever oh. has it has the... You figured it out. Yeah. yeah. Power, money, that type of stuff. We want to influence people, and we want to get them to give us the things that we, that we want them to give them. That is exactly why they want the Bible, which I think is wonderfully nuanced. I like that idea a lot more than just like, I want the Bible because I'm a crazy collector, which is another way they could have gone with it. Sure. Uh, or they could have just been like, he has something... I don't know what it is, and I want because like the, the the thing about the movie is there's a large part of it where we, we don't, don't know that it's the Bible. Yeah, we don't know what it is. Could be could be anything in there, and then it's revealed pretty early on based on what some people say, and then later on it's confirmed completely. The big reveal in the movie is something else, but it's not nearly as interesting as the Bible reveal. And I'm glad that they didn't do like a big Bible reveal. They did one kind of midway into the movie, not even midway, probably like a quarter of the way into the movie. The point of it is we want this to consolidate power, or we want to be able to sway the hearts of men and like trick them into doing the things we want them to do instead of the things that they want to do. Well, like being the only guy with a gun. So that's the thing. The gun does operate differently, but it does operate a lot the same, right? It's, it's different enough, but it's similar in the way that it's, I can influence people pretty heavily with this, right? right. There are a lot of movies that, that handle that, like that play with that. And Westerns are kind of the first ones that come up with this, right? So if your ultimate question is, is like, do you think this is going to play out like a Western where it's like, I'm the best shot in the West, you know, like, uh, I think the name of the movie is Sean, and Sean is this great, he's a really good shot, but he's like, put it away, he doesn't want to do it anymore. But then these bandits come to town, and he's gotta. Right, this is every Western ever go on. Yeah. Or maybe it's Shane, not Sean. I think it's Shane. He starts picking it back up, and he starts, you know, killing people and whatnot, and he becomes able to influence people and garner power and garner, like, people really like him and whatnot. He doesn't mean to, he's the, he's the, like, benevolent Christ-like figure of, like, oh, I don't want to use my great power, but I will if I have to. But his great power is able to, like, sway the hearts of people. The reason he has great power is because he has great skill. And that's kind of what, like, a lot of, like, Western films are trying to get off is that, like, hey, if you're really good at doing a thing, you deserve to have power. You deserve to have influence. You deserve to have adoration. Maybe this is sort of like the post-apocalyptic devolved version of that where it's like nobody knows what a gun is or what it does or how it works or anything, but I have one and it basically is my magic kill stick. And that's 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 interesting in its own right and I think it's fun and, and, and cool to explore. But basically that's how Westerns work. Like, they don't have a magic kill stick. They have a magic ability to work a kill stick in such a way that it always 
kills the other guy and you become the not killed guy. Right. Which is cool because a lot of there's a lot of different stories that have like magic kill sticks and they kind of consistently boil down to like well, But I don't want to use it for bad things. Or who's the best with their kill stick? Not like whose ideology is correct or who's like the smarter person or any, anything like that. Any actual virtues. It's basically just, you any good with that thing, kid? Yeah, I'm pretty good with it. Prove it. And then whoever wins gets to come out on top. Right. So that's what I can't remember. When I, when I read the blurb, because I vaguely remember the movie. I don't remember all the movie. It, sure. didn't, uh, it didn't occur to me that like guns were just illegal. I'm wondering if that's just their write-off for it. Which could easily have been guns are a long lost relic of another age. So I'm wondering if that's just that they're like, no, guns are illegal. And they're like, oh, okay, swords then. So we'll, we'll have to look at the movie and see if it really is like, no, guns are a long lost thing. Or if it's, no, 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 we've said they're illegal. Because like people do illegal things all the time. And right. Like, yeah, what was it? There was a founding father who literally said, if there is a law that comes out and you disagree with it, it is your civic duty to not abide by the law. You're supposed to. If you think about it and you're like, I don't agree with this, don't do it. And that's that's another thing. I think people think about that all the time. Uh, or they, they, they think about it, but they don't really go into it. Why do we follow the laws that we follow? And like, should we follow them? We talk about it a lot where we're like, you know, well, the law doesn't judge morality or ethics. It just says this is what you were supposed to do you didn't do it now you're in trouble or this is what you're supposed to do you you did do it and now you're in trouble you know whatever laws are weird and i think that there aren't a lot of movies that like really dig into that and i wonder if this will be one of those where it's like specifically one of the things that the movie's trying to talk about is like the law doesn't work in a way that's good for us so let's work against it it does seem like the blurb is trying to articulate that these people are willing to follow the law if it really is a law and not a, a relic of a bygone era I, it seems like the main characters are willing or interested in hey, we're just going to do what we're told and follow the law and everything. But somehow, but oppose authority on, like, authority's terms or whatever. Yeah, like, we're cool with following the law, but this guy who has amassed enough power, we're going to fight him. We're going to fight his guys and we're going to bring him to his knees, but not by breaking the law. And maybe that'll be the thing that, like, separates the good guys from the villain here is, like, the villain does have a gun and he uses it. He breaks the law. He doesn't care. And then these guys are through and through all the way to the end willing to follow the law. Maybe maybe by the end, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this right here. I hope that by the end of this movie, the good guys who believe in following the law to the best of their ability all the way to the end learn that it's not necessary in every single case and that they're willing to break the law in order to do the right thing. In order to be just men, they're willing to break the law. And so maybe they'll take the bad guy's gun in the last scuffle and they'll use it and then they'll wield it and say, hey, I've got the power now. I've got the gun. You guys got to follow me. But I'm a good person. I have, I have ethics. I have values. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that this works in a way that's good for everybody and is amicable. I like it. I like that a lot. Let's, let's just do the movie ourselves. Like, uh, let's, do, let's do another replacements because that sounds great. How many times How many times is this, this portion of the podcast going to end on, why, why aren't we just making this movie in our backyard? Right. We've already got it down. God. We've solved this puzzle. I do like that, though, where, like, heroes will adopt villainous. Like, there was a there was a great, I think it was Machiavelli or one of those guys. He definitely was one of the, the, the guy that wrote The Prince. Yeah, I think it, it might have been straight from The Prince. But basically he said that, like, good cannot triumph over evil if good is unwilling to adapt evil things. Like, evil will always be stronger than good because good can't change and adapt and become different and do all the things. But evil can change and adapt and become different and do all the things. There's nothing that's off limits for evil. Right. But there's stuff that's off limits for good. And that's why, like, good guys can't beat bad guys definitively. But they could if they were willing to adapt more of the evil stuff into what they do. 
do. I think that's a cool thing is like heroes need to learn that. You can't just be a paragon of virtue. You can't be a paladin. You can't be a, you know, just a perfect Boy Scout baby boy. In modern films, we get this with, what is it, Captain America Civil War. Tony Stark is basically arguing for what would be considered the more good thing. Like we need to give up some of our rights and our powers so that world governments can make choices for us. They need to have sovereignty in their world. We shouldn't just be dictating what should or should not be done just because we have the power. And Captain America, who is typically a Boy Scout in just about every other film up till this point, is like, no, it's better for us to make the choices because we're good men. We're good people. We should be able to say, oh, we're not going to Fallujah to like capture all of their guns and take them away from them. And then the Amer America just comes in and says, hey, this is America now. That's not what we're going to do. Or if America did do that, we'd stop them because that's wrong or whatever, you know. That was a very good chance for like the Avengers and all those that cast to become a lot more interesting. What do the Avengers do if America just says like, hey, we're invading Africa and we're just going to take over Africa and make it America too? That's sort of the plot in... Uh, Watchmen is Vietnam became a new state of America. They added a star to the flag because they won the war and took it. What would the Avengers do if America did that? Would they just say like, well, we're most of us are Americans, so we're just going to allow that? That's a good point. The boys is what I'll bring up sure. uh, for, for that same idea. It's like, do you think they'd be fed like a certain different kind of information where they're like, all right, you're not doing it because we're America and we're telling you to do it, but horrible people that need America in Africa or Korea or Vietnam or, or whatever this fake nation is that we're fake invading. Sure. All three of the last uh, several nations we just listed are all fake. They're not real. <laughs> <laughs> we know this. Right. Everybody knows New Zealand's not real. Uh, these are the other ones that don't exist. New Zealand's definitely not real. That's yeah, a fact. Exactly. Yeah. Taika yeah. Waititi, that's not a real name. No. They said they filmed the Lord of the Rings. They're bullshit. Yeah, no way. Yeah, that was, that was born out of somebody's backyard. No, of course. CGI does wonders, but like, do, the, do you think... The boys talks about this a little bit. They they literally, uh, there's like a whole plot point where uh, Homelander like goes to other countries and like mutilates people and like video of that gets out to the world and they just kind of spin it. No, that was like a known terrorist that I eviscerated that way. Or there were like, it was a hostage situation. They'll like make up something to make it more okay than it is, even if it's not okay. Even if it's not okay with that like description of it like the, oh they were a known terrorist well we don't just eviscerate known terrorists with laser beams like chill out right was there any threat or anything and in the video you can tell that there isn't that's enough for a lot of people enough people will be like well he was a terrorist so he got what was coming to him that was good enough we've been trained to think that the avengers are paragons of good and virtue and you know they they have but they're ethics. being sent on assignments by people yeah and they they go and people in other countries die and you're an american citizen captain america and you're just going there and making the decision about which of these like Iranian children are gonna die the ones on your left or on your right and like that shouldn't be a choice you get to make somebody else should be making that choice somebody who like you know is from there or somebody who has been given the right to do so by Americans or whatever and we don't know if a Captain America has been given the right to be there or you know how much of this has been bureaucratically like accepted as a good thing to do and, and how much fun of it is. for the people for that yeah and I think the boys kind of covers that. They, they talk about like, you know, well, if you're over there brutalizing terrorists or just regular people or what have you, you know, do you need the approval to do that? Or do you just need to like make sure the public opinion is that you did the right thing? Like, which is more important? And is it important to get which is more important? Or is it important to get just what you need? Like, I need to be like seen as okay for this and to be able to keep doing it. So I don't need 
like approval for it, I need most of America to be like, I agree with what you did. You should have done it. But I think that we have spent enough time talking about this, and I'm hoping that the movie will talk about some of the things that we've talked about. What is legality? What is, like, the purpose of these things? Maybe, maybe not. I'm actually really just hoping that there's some kick-ass fight scenes and not a whole lot of jump cuts. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fight scenes. Um, yes. If, if I recall it correctly, I mentioned Ron Perlman, but who's the, who's the other guy? Tallahassee? I only saw Ron Perlman. Are you saying Tallahassee from the Zombieland movies? Yes, he's he's in this. Woody Harrelson. Yes, that guy. But we will we will cut right into the movie here, and uh, and and away we go. And we are back from watching Bunraku. I know that there are a lot of feelings about this. I know you said that you've already seen this one, but you said that it's been a long time for you. Does it does it hold up? Yeah, actually, I didn't think it was going to be as good as I remembered it. I remember when I broached the subject with you, I was like, hey, I think I oversold this when I was like classical Japanese theater. I remembered it more as like spirit, where it was like it was comic book. It was kind of, you know, campy in that aspect. But they open it right up with like some really cool puppet effects, like uh, the, the paper puppet thing. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. There were a couple of points that I thought were kind of weird. You mentioned it too, where like the video game sound effect as they're going through the, the prison. I, I think that, like, I know that I, I pointed it out and I didn't like, maybe maybe I didn't give as clear of a viewpoint on my judgment for it, but I did think the sound design and like the use of like sounds like that wouldn't typically be in this in like a, if we were to just be like, hey, this is the sound that this literally makes. Or, right. Hey, this is the sound that like, and, and we never, you don't get that in, in movies anymore. That doesn't happen. They don't actually make the sound that the thing literally makes. They right. Out and get they have like a sound designer who I, figures yeah, that out. Yeah, I forget the. I looked it up previously because we talked about this, and there's a name for the guy that's like when you want the punch to sound meaty. There's a guy hitting a stake with a two by four, and that's the punch sound. Yeah, and um, like the, the sound design is the general term for that, but I'm sure there is like a specific. Yeah, there, there's, there's a name for that guy, but I I had a lot of fun with what they chose to do like that specifically. I really liked when, um, you know, they're closing the bamboo paper door on the, the brothel or whatever, the little Asian girls there. And it's like, and now you're stuck here forever. And they close that and it's the cell door noise. And yes. I thought, oh, that's, oh, that's perfect. What a perfect metaphor. They're, that's exactly what they're doing. Is they're comparing her, him putting her in the brothel to him putting her in jail. I also, I really liked um, this man who's dressed as a gunslinger, like a very traditional gunslinger type. But he uses these two guns right here, boy. And every time he's, like, transitioning in a fight scene or, like, getting ready for a fight scene, he flips the brim of his hat and the revolver spin sound. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah, I I, I wish they had done more with that because the actor they picked is kind of like a he looks like a regular Hollywood guy you know he's, he's a good actor I've seen him in a couple of different things I really liked him in Penny Dreadful he's not like I was hoping for more of a play on the whole like I'm a gunslinger but the guns I'm slinging are these fucking hands it de- so I feel like they tried to do that a couple of times where it's like where he like quick grabs the cigarette from the guy or something like that the whole point is to be like I, I could kill you as fast as it from the hips these, these hands come from the hips and hit you just as fast as a bullet yeah uh, quick draw aspect of being yeah. a gunslinger yeah um, maybe maybe it's a benefit to the film I'm not sure but like if they pick more of a bodybuilder type like somebody like John Cena they do a lot to try to make John Cena not look like he's jacked but like if you watch a like peacemaker or anything like you're like oh god that guy's muscles are huge Jesus right. I would have I would have liked that where like maybe there was like a threat of him having a gun people like see him dressing like that because he is kind of like one of the few characters dressed like that in the film most people everybody have that, else like, has that uh, that newsy 
Um, like 1920s kind of like flapper girl yeah. or like mobster kind of guy, but not like specifically the old west kind of towards the end of the like old west time period, long trench coat kind of aesthetic that he's rocking the entire time. And maybe that like people would see that and be like, oh man, you know, he looks like he's the kind of guy that would have back to that first part was like guns are outlawed. It's like, oh, he might be a bad man with a gun. Because yeah, that was the thing. The movie, they dropped it entirely. Yeah, the movie did. They, they showed you the flyers where they said hey guns are outlawed by punishment of death and that was enough that was enough to like not have to bring it up again i guess and like we knew going in because we read the blurb that like guns were outlawed but like they didn't really say that basically they were kind of just like they gave you the opening little thing they didn't bring it up again and then they would just show you kind of the little fly right it was it was less about story building more about world building i guess yeah, you, you mentioned before, like, oh, sometimes you go into a movie and it's like, am I supposed to understand that we're living in modern times under modern rules? And this, I think this was just them being like, hey, we know that this is a fight scene set in a post-apocalyptic future. There's no guns because we say so. To have that be a hard rule and to say, like, it's because we said so. And then for the rest of the film, never touch it again. That's definitely a good way to take it. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's like, hey, we set the rule. That's the rule. And I think that a lot of this movie does that, where it's like, the, the rule is bad guys in charge. And like for the whole movie, the bad guys in charge. And even into like a lot of his dialogue at the end, he's just like, I'm in charge because I'm bad. I, you know, you want justice and I give you pain or, you know, you, you know, show me honor and I'll show you deception. You know, he has these like really like at first I was kind of like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know about this. Madman monologue. Yeah. Yeah. But the more Ron Perlman got to be Ron Perlman, the more I fell in love with it. I'm not a huge fan of the bad man dialogue or the bad man like giving his big speech unless it's a really good speech. His speech wasn't all that good, but Ron Perlman's performance there was just like, yeah, and I'm I'm on top right now and you're right. on bottom and you're an idiot for not learning the lesson I'm teaching you. I'm an old man, but I think that was really, that's what I enjoyed about it too because it wasn't just like bad man in charge. It's like bad man who's been in charge for entirely too long and like even he's kind of fed up with it. Yeah, yeah. That was that was probably one of the best aspects of the movie is him like having enough vulnerability to say I'm too old to be in power anymore. I'm kind of like at the end of this. I'd really like to go out swinging and I'm hoping these guys can make that happen because if they can't, I don't think anyone else is going to come along that can before I'm like, please just kill me. Please right. just, I'm too, I'm too old. I'm too out of it. I don't want to do this anymore. Just get me out of here. That's cool that they established that, that Ron Perlman was like, Ron Perlman's character was like, yeah, I'm, I'm still willing to fight. I still want to live. And like, he established that because I'm sure there, you know, maybe a highfalutin, you know, movie man like me might've pointed that out and been like, Ooh, maybe he's so old that he wanted to die. And that's why that happened. No, at no point in this movie did I think Ron Perlman wanted to die. One, because I think that a lot of like the actions that took place kind of indicate that, but two, because he specifically said so. I think in this case, movies have like specific, like I'm going to specifically say what's going on. It doesn't feel good, but in this movie, it does. I think it might have just been Ron Perlman. <laughs> right. I think I think his monologue worked out really well. I think I'm basically just going to keep reiterating how much I love Ron Perlman and how he does what he do, but just great. I, uh, I am a little disappointed that they didn't have at least one gun in there somewhere. You know, maybe one of the last henchmen would have had one. That, that could have been cool. Like one of the last henchmen is kind of like a like a dweeby kind of like scrawny guy. And you're like, well, how did he get to be a last, like one of the top 10 killers, you know? And the answer is he has a gun. <laughs> right. Uh, during his whole monologue about deception, if he's, if he had like pulled a gun at the end, like that would have probably like really solidified that point he was trying to make. It's like, yeah, guns, guns are illegal. And I'm the strongest motherfucker out there. And I have a gun. That might've been kind of cool if he had like, maybe if in the like, 
the last moments of like the guy having the bow drawn on him and the you know the main dude you know is just like oh I can't get up or whatever and he's about to fire his bow but then at the last second Ron Perlman's character pulls up his gun and shoots right through the last arrow and like oh no and that's what splits the arrow instead of like the the main the main guy the son that's how he gets that half of the arrow is it got shot and splintered and then he's like ah ha ha I shot my and maybe it's the same kind of gun that Woody Harrelson uses to like that'd be nice that'd be flintlock bullshit the little little one shot pistol you know that's all he needs is the one shot because that'll win him any fight he needs to win there you go and then the guy's got like a little bullet in his shoulder or something somewhere kind of harmless but he's like out of the fight now because that did seem a little odd that the like yoshi didn't join in on the fight well he's supposed to be the honorable samurai man right and like i think that was the point of his fight with the other guy because i don't know i guess he did like sort of approach him head on while the guy was like reveling in his victory or something like that i didn't like that that was my thing as i was thinking maybe yoshi learned the lesson that like the son was supposed to learn you know if somebody gives you a chance to like get one over on them you don't worry about honor you don't worry about justice you just go for it and that's what he learned when he was like you know the chips were down and it seemed like he was about to lose he just took the first opportunity he got and it worked out. And like, and even then in that moment, there was still a chance for the other guy to like make a move right. and Yoshi just had the right response. He like blocked the knife and continued to be stabbing him and holding him in place until he died. So it's doesn't, it's not like it feels like in the moment. Maybe that's how Yoshi rationalizes it. I don't know. It definitely, it, I do think that that was kind of what they were going for. Cause even then he like comes in with the bow and the whole time he's been, the bow was really just used as a prop for like starting the fire or something like that. Yeah. Right. Like, he wasn't really killing people with the bow. Yeah, even that, in the big fight, which it would yeah. have been very helpful for that. Right. So, for him, I think that was him at the end being like, no, 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 we, we need to win. And maybe that was something for the counterpoint to their characters where he was, like, very much the honor, the jinn. And the other guy was like, no, nah, I'm... I'm just a, a bar fighter and a, and a gambling cheat and like I'm just gonna go get revenge however I need to. And then at the end they, they flip which is you know nice storytelling wise. Ancient Chinese philosophy is a consistent theme throughout the film. I was going to ask you like how accurate that is because you mentioned the thing like that's literally a line from Confucius. And mm -hmm. They quote some of Confucius's Analects and they, they mention the way a lot and anytime you hear the way that's, that's just like Confucianism and Taoism like both of them mention. The way is just how you translate Tao and what Tao means is just how you live your life or like going forward or the path uh, in front of you. So the way uh, is how it's translated for us to understand because, you know... Because uh, we're, we're dumb Americans? No, ancient Chinese is just very confusing. Oh, okay. It uh, doesn't have very easy one-for-one -one translations. So we have to kind of like have these little amalgamations that sort of make sense. So that's a consistent thing. The medallion has a dragon on it, which I know that a lot of the times we like to think like, oh, a dragon is just vague Asian imagery. But specifically in Taoism and Confucianism, the dragon is the protector of the Tao. It is, it is there to defend the way forward. Okay. Uh, this sort of like hidden oneness with the universe and with yourself is uh, defended by a dragon. And so whenever you see like a lot of that, this is the way or that's the, the way forward is this or whatever, you hear way. What is it? The Matrix has a pretty iconic line where Morpheus turns to Neo and he says, there's a difference between walking the path and knowing the path. The path is another way of saying Tao. So look out for those things in future films if you ever hear, you know, path or the way or, you know, 
something okay. like that. That's what that's what they're hinting at a little bit. And if you hear those kind of like sounds kind of Confucius, you know, Confucius has like a certain aesthetic to it. When you hear it, you kind of you can kind of tell. Right. There's also the bits where he's like everything is a circle. That's pretty Confucius. Confucius and Taoist, both of them. Uh, the Zhuangzi, which is sort of like the, my favorite of the Taoist uh, philosophies, believes that you should stand at the center point of any issue so that like a circle, you can look at every single angle from that issue. You know, you can look at the positive and the negative and everything and understand it in its totality, almost like a circle. You could you could stand at the center of the circle and that way you're always facing a different angle no matter how you turn. That's one of the, the Taoist beliefs in the Zhuangzi that they talk about. When I mentioned like, oh, I had forgotten about this, the fire is burning in the brothel and she's like, oh, go save yourself. And so that, that other lady runs. Alexandra. Alexandra. That was Woody Harrelson's wife. I don't know if it would have benefited if they had, like, gone more into that. Because, like, they had already mentioned, like, oh, she found a better provider. And, like, I'm done thinking about kind it. Kind of his sad character thing. Th- you know? Yeah, that was, like, his personal character thing. But, like, they don't bring her up again at all. They don't bring her up as far as, like, having uh, Ron Perlman's kid. Or they don't bring her up as far as Woody Harrelson. They don't bring her up as in, like, hey, thank you for freeing us. I thought she'd have more of a role considering how much of a role she'd had previously in the movie. That is one of those Hollywood things, you know, we have women in the story just to give guys a reason to do guy things, but they don't get to have their own character. And that's that's shitty, because you're right, like it is it is very titillating. It's 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 interesting. The the other female role that we get in the film is she's my cousin and I want her not to die because we're related. Well thank God you weren't trying to fuck her, at least thank you for that. I think they, they hinted that later, like at the very end of the movie and she looks at a gunslinger man. I don't think that that was them hinting at like, oh Yoshi wants to bang it out with his cousin. I no, well no, not that's not what I meant. I yeah. meant that like Yoshi was like, you, oh. didn't, you didn't bang my cousin, did you? I think, yeah, 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 I, I get you. She's still a sex object, even if she's not a sex object for right. Yoshi specifically. I got you. I, I agree. Like it's it's as if they can't fucking help themselves. They they couldn't they couldn't fucking help themselves. They were like, let's have Ron Perlman give like a cool theatrical like you know speech at the end, and like it's it's not a very well written speech, but Ron Perlman will kill it, and that's a cool right. thing. But then the women in the movie are just like, yeah, they they need to motivate the men, but other than that, they can just die or do nothing. Right. They're like, why is Ron Perlman doing what he's doing? Oh, because he's worried about his uh, his future legacy. It's like, and why is Woody Harrelson doing it? I don't know because Ron Perlman's banging his wife. I I don't know. Yeah, sure. He misses a girl. Well, what girl? How many girls do we have in the movie? Two? Oh, that's too many. Make it the same girl as the Ron Perlman girl. Right. <laughs> Fuck it. One thing that I wanted to bring up, but it seemed like, I don't know if there's enough there for it to be a thing, but I thought it was kind of cool that he's like, I want to meet you in the square at midnight, which is sort of like, I'm going to meet you in the center of town at noon for the gunfight. And I'm surprised they didn't do that. Because that would have been on brand for this movie. There are so many cool aspects of this film. Like, So the way I would describe this film, if I were to ever describe it to somebody who's just like, oh, I'll, I'll listen to your podcast. Uh, which episode's the newest one? And this is the newest one. One Raku, that doesn't, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? What's the movie about? I would literally describe it as the anime Samurai Champloo, but with the musical aesthetic from Cowboy Bebop. Hard jazz. That like jazz, sort of like 1920s flair. And it's got some like western bits in it too. And it's got those video game noises and it's got those like... You know, sort of cliche noises for when they're really trying to drive something home. My my favorite use of overly dramatic like sound effect when uh, I think I think it's Alexandra cracking a walnut and it's a gun sound. Yeah, uh, and the guy like flinches every time he hears it because like if you're like the best fighter, like you're you're killer number two, you're the you're the best right underneath Ron Perlman, and you uh, got to go tell Ron Perlman you fucked up. Yeah, you got to go tell him that like any shocking noise could be you dying. 
Yeah. Uh, and and like also as the best fighter, if somebody just comes to a fight with a gun, you're fine. <laughs> like if somebody's just breaking the law. Right. I feel like it's less of a law and it's more of like a rule of this movie. Like it's like, hey, we're not doing that in this movie, okay, everybody? <laughs> There's a couple of things that they brought up as rules that like I wasn't paying a lot of attention, but they're like, it's the unwritten law of this land. 20 fighters per side and that's all you get. But we don't see any like, uh, you know, gang on gang violence much throughout the movie. It's basically like, well, they brought one dude and it's like only 20. It's like, was it 20? Was it 20 circus freaks jumping around out there? Uh, that is the other cool thing about this movie. So much acrobatics, so much like dancing, so much ballet and so much like hinting at like dancing stuff. Like, uh, God, that opening fight scene where he does that little. It was very pretty where he did the, the violin bowstring draw. And he does the little like, it's not like a salsa move or a sombra move or something. It's like, it's one of oh, those. Oh, that waltz like, type thing where he's. he's He's basically yeah. holding the guy. He's like holding the guy. And I'm like, is he going to kiss him or not? Just lean in, dude. Just God, go just for it. Fuck. Just Just love him a little. <laughs> I would not have hated that. I do I do like seeing that in movies that are like basically just full action fight scene movies where they do shit like that. That's that's the appeal of it, right? It's, it's not that like the guy hurt the other guy. It's that he did it in a pretty way. I think that there's that. And I think and this movie sort of lacked this. This is like one of my biggest criticisms of the film is it does feel a lot throughout the film like there really isn't a whole lot of good reasons for these people to be fighting each other other than we need to fight each other now. There's like the plot does follow and if you're paying attention to the plot there are like plot reasons for it but not like interpersonal character reasons or like philosophical reasons or anything like that. This is why and I've been meaning to talk about this for the longest time like especially people in my age group want to talk about Dragon Ball Z. They love Dragon Ball Z. They're like whenever you talk to people about anime and they're not really into anime. First thing they want to bring up is like well when I was a kid I loved Dragon Ball Z. And Dragon Ball Z it's very good. It came from Dragon Ball. Dragon Ball's kind of a masterpiece. And then Dragon Ball Z came out, and they did really, really well, all the way up until the end of the Frieza arc. Each of the fights up until Frieza are, like, unique and interesting, and the characters have their own motivations that are unique and interesting for why they want to fight. Really, the best villain of Dragon Ball Z is Frieza, and Frieza's reason for why he wants to fight the Saiyans, or Goku and Vegeta and all, his, all those people, is that he's a racist. He literally calls them monkeys. Like, it's impossible to miss. He thinks of them as lesser... And everything that they're doing that isn't just, like, staying in line and doing what they're supposed to do, he punishes harshly and wants to fight Slash and or kill them for, and he's willing to blow up a planet over it because, again, he sees this as a lesser planet that's just dynamic. It doesn't matter. That's compelling and interesting and, like, goes against what Goku and the other characters believe. Every villain after that, they're just like, I'm killing people and, like wanting to fight people because I want to get stronger and I'll blow up the planet I guess if you don't beat me. But it ends up being like the, the Naruto thing where it's like yeah we want all the same things except that blowing up the planet part that kind of sucks. We would be cool with you if you were down for just like training to get stronger with us that'd be dope we'd be besties but the killing people thing and the blowing up the planet thing uh, we're not so dope for that. It, it just takes away the best part of fights for me when one character is like I believe this and another character is like I believe the other way and we have to like overcome that with a physical altercation. I don't think that like every time a physical altercation is necessary. Sometimes it's very cathartic and it feels really good and this movie doesn't have a whole lot of that especially since the characters who are going to fight Ron Perlman don't know him at all and even when they finally get to talk to him it's just Ron Perlman and monologuing at them. Right. And then ultimately them being like, I guess I still disagree with you. It's it's not as if, you know, the Sun character is like squaring up with Ron Perlman in the most honorable, the most justice way. He like squares up with him. Ron Perlman goes to swing and then he very quickly 
draws out a secret weapon and stabs him in the neck, which, like, on the scale of honorable to not honorable, that's more not honorable than it is honorable, right? Right. I'm not saying it's completely, like, the most villainous thing anyone's ever done, but I'm just saying it's more not honorable than it is honorable. So it's not even as if he didn't fully embrace the villain's, like, ideology, and, like, that's an interesting thing to do, and he didn't fully embrace his own ideology of, like, heroism and, and being honorable and whatnot. He kind of got into this weird middle spot that could be compelling if we approached it the right way. I just don't think this was the right way. Yeah, there was there was a lot of stuff like that. So for the plot of the movie, you know, this uh, proletariat workers union or whatever that's supposed to be like the driving force of throughout the movie. They're like, vote for so-and-so, which makes no goddamn sense with the rules of the world as presented. There's a gang that literally runs the town. Right. So they're like, vote for so-and-so. That was another weird thing. They were like, oh no, the police chief is here. And then he went out and accosted the police chief. And it's like, yeah, why would he care about that? He's the the number one gang guy. He just does gang shit and fuck the police. Right. Like, they follow it through enough to be like, hey, those guys that have been trying to elect a new mayor, uh, they're also out here training to Ron Perlman's ass. (laughs) (laughs) I did love that they had like a secret military of people trying whoop that Ron Perlman ass. Right. I feel like they were like, oh, God, guys, we've had a lot of fight scenes. What What was the story again? It's Ah, that, that's right. All right. Uh, yeah. Work that into the next fight scene, though. It's about a guy who's just gained so much power in a time of chaos that, like, now he just gets to be in power forever. That was cool when Ron Perlman was talking about how old he felt and whatnot, but in the final scene, he's basically just like, no, this is about justice versus chaos, order versus chaos, and I'm chaos, and you're order, Order can't beat chaos, because I'll do whatever the fuck I want, and you just have to do order stuff. And again, very you did, interesting. You did bring that up uh, before we rolled into the movie that it's like, I think yeah, it did. The, Machiavelli and the prince. And yeah. The, you know, good can only triumph over evil if, if good adopts evil things. You don't think it was executed as crisply? It is a lot more compelling when the hero has to sacrifice something or has to, like, do something that, like, will stay with him forever. Oh, I tricked him into thinking I didn't have a weapon, but I did. I don't know. If I did that, I'd feel pretty self-righteous. I'd be like, wow, he just threw an axe at me for no reason, so, like, I can just... Right. Like, that- I've, I've been using fists up until now. Like, yeah. I think even at, at some point in the fight where they're like, hey, um, we're going to give the, the samurai guy a, a bow and arrow. That's his new weapon. He's been using whatever the fuck he could get, and we're going to give you set of brass knuckles and he's like wow these are neat i don't need those doesn't have them for the rest of the movie it, it did seem like they they set them up in like more than one scene and then you don't really, he doesn't highlight them at all he's not like these saved my ass in this fight i needed them i mean they did back to the sound design he did during the big melee in the the training camp or whatever like they they do a ping every time every time he slugs somebody i'm not and, saying he didn't use them at all no but like yeah, after the camp, it's like they're gone. Like, yeah. you can see them when uh, they're both fighting, when they're doing the mirror fight. This is the same issue if you set it up that much, where I, I remember seeing the brass knuckles and seeing them putting them on, and, like, they show you it multiple times. If you do that much setup, you have to give more of a payoff than ping, 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 oh, I pinged a couple times. You guys know I used them, right? Right. Like, you have to actually show an instance where if he didn't use them, he would have died. And that would be enough of a payoff where it's like, yep, he needed those things. And I mean, the bow came back and that was supposed to be a big thing. Yeah. The, it's no, like, the, the bow was much, much more used than the fucking brass knuckles. And just the scene where he uses it to light the camp on fire would have been enough for me to excuse the bow. Right. No, that bow, that bow's basically a main character now. Yeah. Good old Bowie. Thanks, <laughs> Bowie. <laughs> David would be proud. One thing that we have not touched on at all is the use of lighting in this film. 
like the, yeah. the different colors and the lighting and like wow. I like the the opening train scene. Like that's the one that that strikes me the most, just because sure. I think the flashing, you know, where it goes full dark and then you see them and they moved a little bit, or it goes full dark and then it focuses like bright light on Cowboy Man and mm-hmm. then dark again and then bright light on Samurai Man and it's like I thought that was really cool. I wasn't really sure how to describe what it was that it was doing. There but. were a lot of things in the movie that were like this feels kind of like how a stage play would be. Like the some of the scenes transitions were like that. Some of the like the uh, the effects that they used in some of the the uh, the actual sets just felt kind of like a stage more than they were a a film and that's really unique and interesting but the thing that stood out to me the most was the lighting and the color used in the lighting all that stuff just felt really dynamic and like it felt like it set the mood there were a couple of them that weren't as good as others but like it felt like it was going there and i had to respect it like it was relentless i think when a movie really does like push the limits and pushes its outer limits as far as we can I have no choice but to say, well, hell, man, you, you went for it, and I've, I've, I've got to give you the thumbs up for it. Way to go. I, I really respect the director's vision on that. Do you think they um, leaned hard enough into this uh, puppet theater thing? I was going to say that. I do not think so. I wish there was more of it. You're, you're, you were right to remember it as like more comic booky than puppetry-y. I think that there were plenty of scenes where like a puppet stuff would have been kind of cool. That's the problem, is that modern filmgoers see like puppetry as comical mm. and not as something to be taken seriously or as something that's kind of interesting. That might have been kind of cool when they showed us like the, the army that they were like building up to like fight the the governor or something they could have just shown us with puppets and like that might have been like a cool little scene showing them do cool puppet fighting um like they did at the beginning of the film you know respectful nice very metaphorical and whatnot and then when they actually showed the fighters they could have had real live people for the actual fight scene and then it's just like oh okay so this is just meant to like portray you know like an idea and not meant to portray the literal like it's not we're not actually sending puppets yeah we're, we're sending real people but these this scene involving puppets was just meant to get across the idea that these guys feel like they've been taken advantage of and they're overcoming their the shitty government where it's like government ran by a mob basically or a gang and now we're going to try to get like a real person in charge and whatnot and that could have been depicted with puppets in that scene or like many 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 different things you know and like most audiences prefer seeing to telling so i think the movie clearly wants to do a little bit of puppetry stuff why not do some more as people you and i were aren't like we're not super huge puppet guys or anything we're not like just dying to see more puppetry in every film we're in but like i'd like to see it in the movies that warrant it right in in this one where you're specifically gonna gonna name the movie after it and you're gonna open up with it like i think there were times where they tried to lean into the like hey but we're making a movie and we don't want to use puppets and like well make it puppety and it's like some of the set design was in that vein where you know they're they're walking through the forest and it was all like paper mache trees and shit like that yeah i really liked the city design yeah Um, that i think everything was just wild enough out there that like it very much could have been like yeah we paper mache all this shit together but you know close enough to home where it's like oh yeah this is this is the big casino i really like the car chase scene and i know a lot of that was just cgi like i get that and like if it's cheaper you know i i understand but like it came out well i think in the in the car chase scene it looked good but i do look back on that and think like this could have been done with you know those little rc cars or something that might have been kind of cool. right. probably not cheaper maybe cheaper i don't but know but very much like in the beginning where they've got the guys dressed in black doing the the t-rex and shit like that mm-hmm. i mean i almost feel like i wanted this to have more of those like i can see the guy moving the cars remember the guy on the stilts that was just 
just walking around. Yeah. They did nothing with that guy. They just had him in the background in that one scene, and I was like, that's cool. I like well, that. because they had the circus. He was on stilts. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, But, like, they didn't, like, they didn't have to. It's not as if, like, they, like, that was, like, a pivotal thing. They were right. like, we need to convince people the circus is in town. They didn't have to. <laughs> they didn't have to do that. <laughs> if, the, if they had no references to the circus in the movie other than the one circus fight scene... You wouldn't be like, uh, ruined my immersion. Cause there I really feel like somebody was excited about that circus, though. Because they get the, the bottle of liquor was sad circus, and then the guy had the stilts, and they're like, somebody wanted to be like, no, I th- this is a circus. I know you think it's a Western. It's a circus movie. Dude, what if there's somebody in the town who is just like, oh boy, can't wait to go to the circus, and he's about to go, but then when he gets there, they're like, yeah, we found a dead guy in the circus. And <laughs> another dead guy right outside the circus. And whoever like, killed the second dead guy... They robbed him because he's missing stuff. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we followed the the trail of blood that led from the circus back to. And by the way, in the main town square, all the circus performers are dead. All the clowns, all the animals, just dead. Just like there's like a, there's a ten year old whose entire world has been crushed. I did I did take some notes really quick. Now that uh, did you? All yes, right. I did. I did. Just just for you, Daddy O. Let me let me. I need to up. I need to start taking notes because sometimes I'll be I'll be driving home and I'm like oh, I forgot to talk about that one. There is an aspect to this film because there's there's a lot of like fight scenes that don't feel as like well done as others like there was that one fight scene where he's like you know going up and down the two stories and i think that they're referencing old boy which is probably one of the greatest fight scenes ever put to film it's all done in one take and it's kind of down a long corridor in a similar way but that one was done where you're sort of like seeing into the corridor and you follow the guy and he goes from left to right and then he comes back to the left to beat up another dude or something happens and it's very long and a lot of stuff is happening and it's masterfully done if there was like one fight scene for you to like take the time to look into with no context whatsoever the the fight scene from the korean old boy don't watch the american version the korean version the american version of that fight scene isn't terrible by any means the korean version is really really good i think that they're kind of referencing that a little bit and it does look good it's just not as involved as the the old boy one um, he, yeah, he's very much working his way down. It you, reminded me more of like, because then they did the video game sound after it. And it was very much like, this is Donkey Kong. We're, we're making a joke here. Yeah. You really do need to see that old boy fight scene. It's so good. I think if you watch it and you're critical about it, it will tell you everything you know need to know about how to make a good fight scene in a movie. But uh, I digress. With a lot of those sound effects and a lot of the like sort of campier parts about this movie, I was reminded of Adam West's Batman from the old TV show, you know what I'm talking sure. about? Sure. Where Adam West isn't even like, God, I, I can't remember what this is from, but there was a bit where Adam West literally says that there are people talking about like, who's the best Batman? And Adam West is like, it's me. I'm the best. And like the other Batmans are like, no, uh, Dark Knight was a fucking masterpiece or like the, the Tim Burton movies where they had a very specific aesthetic or something like that. And Adam West is like, I went around in my like Batman show for many seasons with nothing helping me out. It was just me in like the thinnest little spandex, s- spandex suit. suit ever. No painted on muscles, no like suit with muscles built into it. Nothing. Just Adam Westness, and that's it. Honestly, that's a really good argument, Adam West. I gotta give it to you there. In terms of, like, convincing people you're Batman, he did it with just himself. Right. And a lot of this movie feels a little bit like that Adam West style of kind of comedy, like, trickled in, and, like, maybe it's a bad example, because Adam West's Batman's very silly and very funny, and this movie's kind of meant to be taken seriously at several points. Right. I mean, there's, there's points of it, like, I did remember that scene where it's and in this corner, we have what leading an army of red suits. Red suits. 
Yeah, um, I think I think that's what made me think of it. Is a lot of the parts where they're like they're they're hamming it up. You know, they're really right. it's it's meant to be a joke. It's meant to be kind of silly. Those are the parts that I'm like, this feels like Adam West's Batman. And I, I wanted to point that out to you, so maybe you could like sit on it. Well, yeah, it didn't feel like there was a lot of like there were the CGI aspects with the car chase, and like maybe they could have done that differently. Like I said, it's probably cheaper. But, like I really think they just had people doing their doing their stuff for most of the movie. Like even the circus performers, I bet they were just like, can we hire actual circus performers, like actual tumblers? And it's like, yeah, and, and they already have costumes. Like, just tell them to come in. <laughs> <laughs> there was that bit after the the car chase scene because, like, we we pointed out that Woody Harrelson has just the wackiest car in the film, and he kind of does and kind of doesn't. Like, everybody else also has sort of a silly car, but his is extra silly, right? And then after they get done with the car chase and he successfully evades them and he he won the car chase, he's like, yeah, don't underestimate the power of these wheels. And then nobody says anything, and I'm just like. Can someone compliment Woody Harrelson at least once in this movie, please? Like, he's not even also the narrator, because that would be pretty neat. There's a point where the narrator kind of likens Woody Harrelson's character to a mentor figure. He doesn't really mentor them on a whole lot of stuff until the very end of the film, where one of the guys is like, and this is another Confucian thing, he's like, hey, you could have been the chief of police or a governor or something. And he says, no, I pour the drinks. I make the drinks for the people, and I want to continue making the drinks for the people. At one point in Confucius's Analects, he says there was a man who approached him and said, you could have been a great uh, statesman, you know, somebody running a state of China and, you know, directing the people on what to do. A lot of Confucian philosophy, a lot of people don't know this, but it's about uh, how to run a state, basically. Like, how to create harmony within people, within a a government, basically. And he responded to this by saying, interacting with people, making people around me better, that is how I better my state. And if we all did that, we'd all have better states. I think that's kind of what Woody Harrelson's character is trying to get at, is, no, I don't want to be in some sort of government power position. I want to better the people around me by serving them drinks and having these conversations with them about like where they are in their lives. Showing them my pop-up funnies. Being, being compassionate. I think that Woody Harrelson's character is kind of meant to be... There's sort of playing with with Woody Harrelson's character they're sort of playing with a western idea and an eastern idea the eastern idea being Confucianism and the western idea being like you're a local bartender you go to your bar to like get out your woes most people don't really use it like that in a practical way but like that is sort of like the it's the trope it's sort of like uh what is it cheers Cheer. yeah the, the whole thing was set in the bar because that's where the, that's where the people were themselves or whatever. That's where you would go after a hard day to like talk to somebody and just you know kind of try to get it all out basically. Your psychoanalytical therapy is where you would get it out at a, at a bar. You would go and you just kind of talk to the bartender and you know that way you could kind of help to understand yourself. And most bartenders they don't know you on an intimate level unless you're there like every few days. So they're kind of just trying to like ask you those like very you know tell me more you know kind of just trying to get you to talk more because they don't really have a whole lot to go off of they don't fucking know you right and that's a little bit how psychoanalytical therapy works with a therapist they're kind of just trying to get you to talk more to like help you to explore yourself more i think that a lot of this movie is about trying to explore a western idea and an eastern idea i mean the movie ends with like the western gunslinger shaking hands with the eastern swordsman just for your knowledge in case you haven't seen samurai shampoo or uh, cowboy bebop i've watched a bit of it but yeah samurai shampoo is exploring samurai culture from like the Edo period specifically, I believe, and Western hip hop, basically. I think it, it's a lot more heavy handed with the samurai culture stuff than it is with the Western hip hop stuff, but the, it's made by the same people who did Cowboy Bebop, and Cowboy Bebop is cowboy culture. In the future. Uh, well, yeah, so there's like cowboy culture and, and sci fi culture. Well, really, what it is 
if you break it down even further, Cowboy Bebop is trying to break apart uh, America culture. And a lot of American culture has changed the way that the rest of the world works. When Star Wars came out, everybody in film was like, oh, we can start making space movies legitimately now. Like, they will make money. They will be huge successes. That's a thing that America did to film forever. And that was, you know, there were space movies before that, you know. Uh, we had we had other space movies. It's not like it was never done. It's just they weren't terribly lucrative. It wasn't so, they weren't so successful that it was like, oh, we got to keep doing this forever now. But America did that. And so that might be why it's set in space and sci-fi is such a big thing. Americans love sci-fi a lot. And we kind of you know, have reason to with Star Wars and things like that. The musical aesthetic that they're trying to explore is jazz, right? A bebop is like a jazz sort of thing. Another one that they made that doesn't get brought up as much is Space Dandy, and that is like more heavily leaning into the space themes, because even in Cowboy Bebop, they are they're in space. That's true. That's not a but that's not where a lot of the shit takes place. Yeah, they're they, they they're like traveling to another planet. Yeah, they land on the planets and then they go to the saloon. Right, <laughs> and it's like, oh, we're in cowboy times again. Holy shit! And they like collect bounties. They're bounty hunters specifically. Space Dandy is also, I guess, I guess technically he's a bounty hunter, but it seems more like he's just trying to get by instead of like trying to get people they're they're exploring like sci-fi you know sort of culture and stuff like that and that's that's one of the big things and then the other thing is disco culture is one of the big things in in space dandy and uh, like space dandy is really great about talking about a lot of different things one of them being ancient chinese philosophy <laughs> <laughs> I think that was kind of the thing that this movie was trying to do was like hey we're going to take one or well these two different types of culture and we're going to take like a bunch of different types of musical aesthetic but primarily kind of like that 1920s kind of like jazz and big brass yeah yeah those big brassy you know like musical bits god those that that alone was enough to make some of the more mediocre fight scenes like a lot more fun it's just those like those like Boo-wee! kind of sounds you know Right. The first fight scene, like, I noticed it a lot. You know, every, every hit was accompanied by, like, Bow! Yeah. Like that kind of thing, yeah. And it, and it sounds and it feels good. And, like, it didn't really matter that there were a ton of jump cuts, you know. And there, were, there were some fight scenes that were better about it. I think may, it's very possible that some of these people were, like, maybe they were trained stunt actors. Like, they're, like, they're actors, but they know how to do their own stunts, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or they've, like, I'm an actor, but I also have a black belt. Purely speculating. I haven't, I don't know. But it felt like some of them were better at it than others. Maybe the, uh, like, killer number two is, like, bald, so it's easier to get, like, a stuntman for that. Because you can just get any stuntman and then mm-hmm. say, okay, for this character, you have to put on a bald cap, or you have to shave your head, or whatever. You have to wear a hat and these Morpheus glasses. Yeah, yeah. The Morpheus glasses, oh lord. I don't know what those are meant to represent exactly, because Morpheus is sort of a character, if we're to say that sight is equal to enlightenment, it makes sense. Morpheus can put glasses on without them having little hooks on the end to keep them in place, because he's so enlightened, can see better than the rest of us, so he can wear glasses that the rest of us can't wear. That makes sense. Killer number two... It doesn't work in the same way, but maybe there's something I'm not seeing here. I think it was to go with the aesthetic. There's, there's this YouTuber that I like to watch, and all of his videos are... Uh... So he has a series of video, and it's actually like a little canonical universe in its own thing, where it's... Uh, I think him and his buddy are both German, or maybe just his buddy's German or something like that. And so, like, the first episode in the series that he does, he's like, Yeah, man, you, you, just, you just shouldn't wear those glasses. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I got them at the thrift store, they're really nice glasses. And he's like, yeah, you just probably shouldn't put them on. He's like, I'm going to do it anyway. So he's oh, like, no! He puts them on. He puts them on, and he's... Immediately, an Indiana Jones. Yes, Mister Jones. 
mountains. And it's like, where do you even get the gun? Uh, so I think maybe it's just that aesthetic. They're bad guy glasses. Put He's on a bad, bad guy. guy. Yeah. He's a bad guy. Maybe, oh man, maybe that's a way of looking at uh, the Matrix I haven't considered. Maybe Morpheus was wearing those glasses because he was supposed to seem like he could be a bad guy. I don't know. Morpheus doesn't show up in a whole lot of scenes until, oh no, he's in the scene when he's trying to convince Neo to go into the Matrix and take the take the pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. They're trying to like get across to the audience like, this guy's got bad guy glasses on. Is he a bad guy? We don't know. And then the more you think about it, the more it's like, no, those weren't bad guy glasses. Those were magic glasses that shouldn't work at all and they do for some reason and it's because he knows man he's 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 got his finger on the pulse you know mm-hmm. that was always one of the cool things about morpheus's character to me is that he like he seems to get it you know right his faith is rewarded throughout the franchise is like i know you're the one neo everyone else is like even neo like, I, I don't know man i don't think i'm the one <laughs> it's like of course you're the one because i listened to the prophecy and out of all these years i'm the only one who got it I listened to the prophecy, and I think also, uh, what's her name, the Oracle, like, gave him something that, like, indicated that that would be the case. But the Oracle shit is all, like, weirdly cryptic and kind of backwards. <laughs> back to the, back to the movie. <laughs> so anyways, the Matrix is great. Uh... <laughs> back to the movie! <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I have a whole lot more. I know that, like, the blurb told us that one of the guys was a fist fighter and the other guy was like a sword person i wish there were more bits where like it was clear that the sword guy didn't know how to fight that well i I would have liked if there was like a bigger gap in the dichotomy or something like that because you know it comes up but whenever he's in a fight it's well he he does like hand to hand during the fight in the sushi restaurant like he goes to visit the gang or something like that and it's like now he's got a broom handle and he very much handles it like a sword and i guess just contemporary weapons or something like that because at one point he's got a spear. I don't know where the fuck he got that spear. He's just like, hey, there's, there's a spear on the ground. I'll carry this just in case. Um, what, a, what a convenient spear that the plot has given me here. But then they have that scene where they're like dueling each other and they both seem like... Competent fist fighters? Yeah. yeah. So it's not even like I'm the fist fighter guy because I fist fight and that's my jam and he's like, oh, well, I can't, I can't do shit without a sword. I would need to watch the movie a second time, but it did seem like after their duel, the son used a lot more throws than normal or that than he had previously. It seemed like maybe, maybe that was like the Yoshi's thing is that he would do throws a lot, which makes sense. Like... If you don't have, like, a weapon, somebody's charging at you with one, you kind of want to, like, take their momentum and just toss them on the ground. And then once they're on the ground, it's easy to, like, you know, take advantage of that position and maybe, like, give a killing strike of some kind. Right. If, like, that's what they were going for, that would be kind of interesting. Like, he sort of taught the son that, like, throws are an important thing to keep in mind during a fight. Something tells me that this movie wasn't going for that. And I don't they were just like, they need to have a fight scene to prove that they're equals. Yeah. And it's like, all right, well. He even got his sword and didn't, like, even win that exchange, I don't believe. Right. Like, I, I guess he did win the exchange ultimately, but it felt like it was still, oh, now the sword guy has his sword, so this is going to be, this is this is how he gets the upper hand here. That's that's not what it felt like. I, I, I don't know. I, I, wish, I wish they had done more with that. He's not a very good fighter, and the fighter guy has to come and help him, and he's like, well, can't be expected to keep you around if you're no good at any of this, and he's like, I just need my sword. And maybe that could have been like... One of the beginning plot points is that he's there, like... They stole my medallion and my sword. Yeah, 
And then he's like trying to get his sword back. That would have been kind of neat. Or maybe there wouldn't be a need for a medallion if the guy just took his sword and he's just using all these other makeshift weapons to like get by. And maybe that could be his character. There, there could have been a sword. They, they had swords in the movie. It's not like we outlawed guns and swords. No, there were swords. There were knives. There he were could have just gotten a sword. He had money too. Like, I don't, I don't know why he had so much fucking money. Aside from the fact that the son needed it. Or like where he got the money. He's, you know, he's, everything about his character is a little confusing. He's like, I'm just a villager. And it's like, I could have believed that he's a villager. Where'd you get all the money? And why do you have all the money? What did you come here expecting? I think he just was supposed to come here and be like, I'm going to pay somebody to go get me the medallion. Done deal. Easy peasy. Sounds like a good deal to me. Uh, I did like the uh, the guy with the glasses who did the little like kitchen knife fight scene and he like sort of tells him like your dad sent you or your uncle sent you whoever sent you sent you so that you could become a man and I was like oh that's cool but like it didn't really feel like they did anything with it after that character died like no I, I don't know what he was going on about it. I need the medallion yeah <laughs> yeah he just continues to go for the medallion and not like that might have been cool maybe they beat Ron Perlman soundly with our ideology our logic our ethics are better than yours it's this is the right way to do this. And Ron Perlman is like, you've argued me to believe you. I understand. And then Ron Perlman is like, I'm sorry, I'll give you your medallion back. This is what you came for. And I'll unkill your father. <laughs> yeah, he can go, no, I don't need it. I'm a man now. And that's what I'm really here for. Defeating you in this way where we argued you out of villainy is the best way to do everything. I'll just trick everyone and beat them. Da, da, da. And turning, that might have been cool, turning Ron Perlman into a good leader by interacting with him that way. And that's more of the Confucius way to do it. Like, you don't, like, go and conquer people physically. That's a Moist way of doing things, which would have been kind of in that same Warring States period, but a totally different ideology. And it wouldn't really fit in with this movie, because this movie cares about, like, music and sound and everything, and the Moists specifically hate music. Really Specifically weird. hate music. They hate it. Oh, okay. They're like, it's a waste of your time and your energy and your wow. money. Don't do it. That's wild. It's, there's some weird stuff back then. But remember, this is a different time. So resources were run thin. And if you're spending money and time and, you know. If you didn't use the wood on a tool and you used it to make a fucking violin, what an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's what the Moists were arguing for. The idea of, like, hey, we need to have a strong military and, like, have a strong, like, group of specifically Moists argued for mercenaries. People who were strong and capable. For money. Well, yeah, kind of. Okay. Yeah, for money. That was their job. Or for, like... More specifically, I think most were arguing for, like, ethics, for, like, what they believed was right. And that's what they were doing mercenarying for. But, like, yeah, basically just people outside of the state who knew what was right and were doing it. And, like, mm. that's kind of something in this movie. Well, right. It doesn't connect really well with the rest of it. And, like, it would have been cool to see one of the things I keep bringing up, the Confucius Analects, and, like, not to see them try to be, like, the way that the Analects argue this is that we should try to use our ability to better the people around us to better the world around us, reverberating outward that, that way. And to use that on Ron Perlman to be like, your ideology of do whatever it takes to like get what you want isn't actually noble or good or reasonable in any way. It's pure hedonism, and this is how we argue against it. And then for him to eventually be like, I was wrong. You're right. And because he does have things he cares about other than just pure hedonism. He wants to start a legacy. He wants to have children. That could have been a cool thing where Alexandra could, could have had a cool point in the story where maybe she shows up with, you know, Woody Harrelson's character and helps to argue the point. And then at the end, you know, hey, you guys were right. I'll become a good leader. I'll actually try to turn this from post-apocalyptic gang violence into a real state where people have rights and, like, we defend those things and 
you know, being good people. So I vaguely remember, um, it just popped into my head and I don't really think it changes anything. When, when the son walks in on Ron Perlman shaving or whatever, mm-hmm. the, the quick move to hide the, to hide the axe mm-hmm. is kind of similar to, uh, how he's shaved at the arrowhead or something like that. I don't know if that means anything, but I guess that's the parallel they're trying to draw. Yeah. Right. I think that's, that's a, that's a good point. And that's the thing that they're saying is like, you'll have to stab me in the back. I expected him to stab him in the back. I also did. Yeah. Like in a very literal way, but I guess he stabbed him in the back in a roundabout sort of, this basically is a stabbing in the back effectively. He, he took enough of Ron Perlman's advice, but also kept his own ideology. It was like, no, I'll fight your face to face. Kind of. But I do think it is sort of, like, deceptive to hide your weapon from the other person. Sure. I also don't love that Ron Perlman's, like, swing is easy to, like, just duck under. It looked like he was going for just, like, a horizontal, like, baseball bat-style swing. What's stopping the other guy from just ducking and then giving you the old the old uppercut, like, Mike Tyson-style, just, bah, gotcha! I mean, I guess he was supposed to, like, up till then have been completely incapacitated by this little hatchet in his shoulder. Like, yeah, I mean that that no that makes sense. I mean, and I that is one of the things I liked about that scene is that like it did feel like the hatchet was like debilitating the hell out of him and I know a lot of people are going to see that scene and be like, "Oh, come it's on. just in his shoulder." And I'm like, "Okay, you, <laughs> you take one of those." He's in shock, dude. Like he's struggling. Right. Like I I don't know how deep that hatchet went, but like this is not like a happy area to have severed. Yeah. I, I like that because there are a lot of times in movies where somebody will just take a bullet to the shoulder and be like, yeah, I can shrug this off and have like a t- five minute fight scene with this dude. Where I'm, I'm still, I'm still going to use that arm. And it's like, you can't do anything with that arm, buddy. You don't yeah, even you know. You stand right now. You're fucking, you're having a rough one. <laughs> and yeah, I think having an, an ax thrown into you and forcibly enough for it to stick in there when you like stand up. Right. It's not even like. And then he's being like battered the whole time. Like basically being, um interrogated and the first thing Ron Perlman does is he's like alright you're gonna tell me who you are and then he steps on the axe again like it's yeah. st- right to the floor yeah like no man you're um bright. I'm surprised during that whole thing he's like alright that, that guy you killed I'm, I'm his son um <laughs> I thought it was weird that the movie tried to like obscure the fact that 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 he's his son. Right, like when there was there was enough foreshadowing in that where they're like, "Was man once told me blah blah blah," and then Woody Harrelson's like, "That's something an old man would say." You mean old man like your old man? And and then and then Ron Perlman says says it later, and it's like, "Wow, Ron Perlman knows the same old man." What a quinky dink! They must hang out at the same old folks' home. Yeah. All these people going down to Woody Harrelson's bar, man. That's a happening place. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why he stayed at Martin. He's like, no, 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 guys. I don't want to be a statesman because I make a lot of money. Yep. All the big names. You know, you know, the top ten killers all come to my bar. Top ten killers, the entirety of the old folks' home. <laughs> people from Japan? Fuck. Apparently the brothel nearby. Just loaded up coming out here. The, the whole, they, I, I know they had a whole shot of the whole city, but there's just... There's the bar, the brothel, the samurai dojo. That's it. All the other buildings, just paper mache props. There's literally nobody living there. Nah, we're just kidding. There ain't, ain't no real places out here. All right. Well, I think that is enough for today. Is there anything that you wanna you wanna hit me with, uh, Mr. Um, Pineapple? I felt this was the smartest movie I've recommended yet. So far, this is number one without competition. Which is a shame. I really wanted uh, the Brady Bunch to be sitting on a pedestal for a little longer. Yeah. Well, well, you know, maybe we'll space them out. Right. (laughs) Space them out a little bit. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that, we'll call that a day. We'll, 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 uh, we'll take it easy from here. Do you?